0: Okay, we'll start then. Uh, first order of business, uh, I'd like to welcome Josi Lo Santander. <laughs> for me to talk about him. But anyway, I'll try. Uh, he's Ken Rinpoche's nephew. Uh, he entered Sarah Monastery in Lhasa when he was seven years old. Uh, moved in with Ken Rinpoche uh, when Chum Rinpoche was 24 or something. Uh, served him his whole life. When, uh, when Sarah was attacked... Uh, was bombarded. Uh, He took uh, Rinpoche to safety in the mountains, and came back to the monastery when it was burning, and risked his life to get the food and money together and run, and uh, got Rinpoche out of Tibet. Then uh, lived 12 years in a refugee camp. 1,500 monks. Uh, about a quarter of them died from TB. Uh, came down and helped one of the hundred monks to start Sarah Monastery and help build it and save it. Uh, and <laughs> served as the uh, on the board of directors to feed all the monks for many years. Uh, when I first came to the monastery, um, taught me to wear my robes, got me ordained, uh, set me up with my first debating teacher, fed me all the time, uh, all the way to the Geshe degree, okay? Then taught me how to wear my hat and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Taught me to speak Tibetan, okay? So uh, you owe him a lot. <laughs> so we want to give him a kata and uh, a small offering, okay. <laughs>
1: I speak uh, not speaking good English. I need to translate us. I have heard to be to do it. I have to do I
2: have
1: do it. I have been able to uh, I was 7 years old when I entered the
0: monastery and uh, Ken Rinpoche took me under his care and uh, I stayed there and studied uh, for 10 years and then the Chinese attacked and uh, I... uh, Rinpoche, we talked, what should we do? And Rinpoche said, uh, got to run to India and uh, I had absolutely no other hope in the world but Rinpoche. So I ran, ran with him and uh, tried to help him and we made it over the mountains and uh, into India.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Then uh, we ran and uh, we had no time to get extra clothes Uh, our shoes wore out halfway over the mountains. We walked the last part through the snow without shoes and reached uh, India. Uh, The Tibetan refugee government after we reached India tried to help Rinpoche by finding him a position as a school teacher in the Tibetan schools and I had to go to the refugee camp and uh, so we were separated and uh, but in my mind I I always wanted to be with him, and and, and in my mind I was with him all that time.
1: Uh,
0: Then Ken Rinpoche was asked to come to the United States and he came and uh, I was happy that he had so many good students here.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm very happy to be here, see so many people studying Dharma, happy that I could come, happy to see all of you here and uh, welcome your study and your devotion to this Buddhism. Uh, when you undertake your studies now and don't just swallow it like a dog swallows whatever food they can get, uh, examine what's taught, uh, like gold, as if you were buying some gold jewelry, very expensive jewelry, and in the books they say, cut it, uh, check it, burn it.
1: Uh, file it, make sure it's the real thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, even if Dharma were just something that uh, we were only going to use for one lifetime until you died, you should examine it carefully, but that's not the case. Dharma will affect you for many lifetimes. So it's important to examine and try to get a good Dharma, a pure Dharma, because you're going to, it's going to affect you for many lifetimes. <laughs> Then the uh, fact that you were able to study with Kharamba uh, who from Tibet, who completed all of his studies in Tibet, and then got to America, and the fact that you've had uh, the opportunity to study with Ken Rinpoche is a, is a great good fortune for all of you.
1: Uh, then you're lucky to have
0: classes from me, too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> because he is uh, this learning the, uh, what you say, the they go to Kiji. Um, uh, time, finish the He is learning the attending class of everybody. you know that. not that. is that. 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 the the that. Uh,
0: Then uh, even though you haven't been able to stay in the monastery, still you're learning perfect Dharma and everything you're learning is so pure and uh, especially important for you is to know how to take refuge and what it means to take refuge. My dearest hope of my heart is that you study uh, karma, you study the results of karma, and then you go further and higher and think about helping other beings uh, with compassion. This is my fondest hope.
1: <laughs>
0: then all I have to say is uh, work your butts off. <laughs>
2: okay.
0: start mm. <laughs> I really want to thank uh, John Brady okay for last night <laughs>
2: and
0: Mercedes where's Mercedes honey <laughs> No, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, oh boy. Okay. We have a little presentation to make. This one is for, okay. There's this guy named Seamus who, uh, I don't know, you're not really aware when the sound system is working right, you see, Uh, until the disc jockey comes on. And it's really good. (laughs) And I had to run away because I wanted to dance in bed. so bad. Uh, <laughs> so we'd like to thank shameless for that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and Vivian worked hard on the all the press stuff uh, and had many people there from the press. And uh, and then Dita was working a lot on the slides and getting the all the presentations ready on the walls and stuff. So I'd like to thank Dino also. Yeah. Thank you. We tried to have all these receptions in the past and they were really boring. And uh, <laughs> or we lost a lot of money. That was a different thing. But uh, <laughs> and I'm not dissing them. They were important and I appreciate them. But but this one was really fun. <laughs> and thank you also for the magic. <laughs> Okay. Uh, uh, When I was uh, first learning Buddhism, books came out called Abhidharma, you know, and I didn't know what Abhidharma was, and I kept uh, asking people, you know, nobody could really tell me what Abhidharma is, and everybody has their own version of what Abhidharma is, and I remember reading one book about Abhidharma that never mentioned anything about Abhidharma, and... uh, (laughs) So I thought uh, we're going to be studying tonight and next week, uh, next class, Karma. Uh, The ultimate uh, book on it is the Kosha. and uh, especially the name of the fifth course, which is what we're going to be studying in the next two classes, was uh, how karma works. And to me, uh, that's even more important, you see. So you're going to be studying uh, the original text about karma. And then I think what's most important is we're going to attempt to answer the question of how does karma work? Because uh, you know it's one thing in a country like Thailand or, or Sri Lanka to have your mommy come and say, "Don't squash bugs. Uh, you'll be born as a bug and it'll come back to you." You know, and 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 you hear that. You know, at some point in your life as a Westerner, you heard it. You heard people say, "Oh, there's people in China who believe that if you squish bugs, you're going to become a bug later." And you say, yeah, yeah, that's nice. I even remember books in college that said Buddhists made up the theory of karma to keep people in line. And there's no such thing. Now, I remember reading that, you know. And uh, and it seems like that. It just seems like, oh, there's people in Asia who believe this thing and there's no real good reason for it. and And you can choose to believe it or not to believe it, but there's no real proof for it either way. You know what I mean? And it seemed like that. It seemed like karma was like that. So I think when we got to the fifth course, uh, in the monastery we study Abhidharma Kosha it's the root text on Abhidharma and very, very, very beautiful presentation of karma then when we get on to uh, Middle Middleway and Mind Only School we find out how karma works you see what I mean? and then when we get to the Lam Rim we find out uh, if you do this you'll get this and if you have a bad back this is what you did a thousand years ago you see what I mean? and for me that was very interesting you know what I mean? because you can fix it by fixing the karma. So it was very interesting to see what I call the correlations. Do this, get that. You want to know why crime went down in New York last two years? It's because of you. You're doing something. You see what I mean? Uh, you want to know uh, why you're getting old? Uh, it's you. Karma's changing. You want to know where that person in your life came from that showed up six months ago that's driving you crazy? Uh, <laughs> They came from you. <laughs> everybody laughs. Everybody has one. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they came from you. And, and to know what exactly you did, even if you don't remember, you see, if you study what I call the correlations, if you see. And, and so we copped that from the Lamrim, Rim. We copped uh, how karma works from the Mind Only School and Madhyamika School. And then we copped the uh, basic principles of karma from the fourth chapter of the Abhidharma Kosha. And that's what this is going to be about. Uh, how karma works. Okay, um, Abhidharma Kosha. First, I want to talk about the name of the book. <inaudible> 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 Ch, Okay. Chu means Dharma. Okay. Numbah means Abhi. Okay. And Z means treasure. Treasure house. Okay. Like a big treasure chest or something like that. Kosha. Kosha means that, right? Uh, Abhi literally means up to something, to, to approach something, approaching something. Abhi means approaching something. Uh, Chö means dharma, okay? Chö, the word dharma means thing, existing thing, okay? Dharma can mean Buddhist religion, but it also means any existing thing, okay? And Dharma comes, this is the word uh, dharma, in Sanskrit, and then it comes from a root "dur." you see? And uh, "dur" means to hold something, "Dur" means holding anything, so dharma means, uh, dharma means that which holds. And it can be explained as that which holds its own nature, which means any existing thing has its own nature. Not by itself, of course. Uh, but it's also taught that dharma is called dharma because it holds you back from falling into the lower realms. You see what I mean? If you do dharma, it'll keep, it'll... I, I imagine a guy with suspenders and, and the guy's holding him, you know, he's about to fall into the lower realms and dharma, the function of dharma is to dur, which means to hold you back. So that's the literal meaning of the title. More more relevant here is that the highest dharma of all is what? Uh, Enlightenment, nirvana, and enlightenment. And this takes you up to that, you see? And that's why it's called Abhidharma, takes you to the highest thing. You see? Abhidharma, takes you to the highest thing. And that's what Abhidharma means. What is Abhidharma? What would take you to enlightenment? What's the most... I'll, I'll give you a clue, okay? What's the most efficient, effective, powerful, fantastic 20 minutes uh, <laughs> that you could ever do to get you to, to the highest en- dharma, you see, enlightenment? It's Tonglam, okay? It's seeing emptiness directly. You know... It's almost uh, the case that you can... Anytime somebody asks you a question in the debate ground, you say, Oh, that relates to seeing emptiness directly. You know, because everything relates to seeing emptiness directly. Because once you do, you're out of here. You see what I mean? That's a big difference, okay? So, so the real Chirung is Tonglam, Gomlam, and Miloblam. It means path of seeing, path of habituation, and then what we call the path of no more learning. And those are Abhidharma. You see what I mean? Those are the ultimate Abhidharma. The wisdom... Of those three paths which understands emptiness directly, okay, and you can do it on all three paths, is Abhidharma, okay? So in the text it says, Chungun uh, Shirab Chime. Abhidharma means immaculate wisdom, meaning the wisdom which perceives emptiness directly. In this school they might call it selflessness, okay? Jedang Che, Jedang Che means. Along with what you need to see emptiness directly, okay. In other words, study. You need you need to understand karma. You need to understand other things first. Dependent origination, okay. So abhidharma means the wisdom which perceives emptiness directly at the three of the three higher of the five paths. Everything after seeing emptiness directly, let's put it that way, is abhidharma. Is real abhidharma. Uh, and then anything that helps you get there, like studying, meditating, contemplating, going to class, okay? That's all Abhidharma. That becomes Abhidhamma. By extension, all the books about that become Abhidhamma. okay? So all the books about those subjects are called Abhidhamma. okay? So now you know what real Abhidhamma is. Dharma means kosha, means treasure house. Uh, it's called, this is the main book on Abhidharma. This is used in all Tibetan monasteries to study Abhidharma. There are other books about Abhidharma. Uh, there were books written by direct disciples of the Buddha about Abhidharma. Uh, there are seven great books about Abhidharma. Uh, and they're all included in the kosha. So that's why it's called the kosha. The kosha, meaning the treasure house of, wisdom, of Abhidharma, includes all of those books, all the contents of those books. That's why it's called Abhidharma Kosha. And it's studied in all Tibetan monasteries uh, for this subject, Abhidharma. It was written about 350 A.D. by Lobanyanyan. Uh, Lopan means master, and Yignan means basubandhu. who is the half-brother of Master Master Sangha, Arya Sangha, okay? You never call a Lama by their naked... We call Jemba, Sen Jemba, naked name or... Okay? You always say, you're holy, excellent, wonderful, glorious, Geshe-Losan Tandu or something like that, okay? You never say Tandu, okay? (laughs) Not not good, okay? So, Master Vasupandu, okay? Okay. Okay. half-brother of Master Sangha. Between them, they wrote most of the curriculum used at all Tibetan monasteries. Not bad, okay? You're going to be studying a commentary Say, Zidik.
1: Thailam. Thailam. Zidik
0: here means kosha, means treasure house, means the Abhidharma kosha. Okay? So it's referring to the original book by Master Basibandu written 16 centuries ago. Okay? Dik Tha. means Tikka is Sanskrit for commentary. And the Tibetans sometimes use this as a lone word. And they corrupt it and misspell it and that's a different spelling. Okay? So, Zidik means uh, commentary to the Abhidharma kosha. Tar means, Tarpa means what? Freedom, moksha in Sanskrit, freedom. Uh, lam means the path to freedom. And Selje means illumination, like the sun is sometimes called Selje. Okay? Illumination or a lamp upon the path to freedom. Okay? Which is a commentary to the Abhidharma Kosha. You're going to be studying this commentary. This is your main book for studying Abhidharma Kosha. You try to study the Abhidharma Kosha, forget it. The five act towards the four. Three assert power. Four are connected. You know, I mean, it's code. It, the whole Abhidharma Kosha is code. It was written in code. It was meant to be memorized, and your teacher would explain it to you. Okay? So you need to have a commentary. Okay, impossible to study Abhidharma without a good commentary. Uh, you're going to be studying the commentary by Yawaganda Say, Gyalwa, Gyalwa. Gendin. Gendin. Gendin, Tup, Gyalwa, Gyalwa. Gendin. Gendin. Gendin, Tup. 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 Okay. Uh, before each of the Dalai Lama's names in Tibetan, in written Tibetan, usually say Gyalwa. So, Gyalwa means the victorious one, meaning a Buddha, an enlightened being. Uh, Jina in Sanskrit. So, Gawa means uh, the victorious one. And it's a, when you see Gyalwa in front of someone's name, you know they're a, they're a Dalai Lama. Okay. This happens to be the first his holiness the first Dalai Lama, Genundu. Okay. His teacher was Jetsung Kappa. Okay? He was he was one of Jetun Kappa's like later students, okay? He was pretty young when Jetun Kappa was pretty old, all right? But he did study with Jatsun Kappa. Right. He wrote a very famous commentary. For those of you who care, there's two Tarlam Celdays. Uh, one is a very famous uh, book on logic by Geltov J, And so we always say "zutik" in front of this one to distinguish between them. This is the Tarlam Sajai that's a commentary to Abhidharma because there's a different Tarlam Uh And then in the monastery you have to say which one you're talking about because both are very famous. Okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about, a little bit about a thing called Gusok Chushi, okay? Let me spell it for you. Say gusot, gusot. Chu-shi. chushi, gusot, gusot. chushi. Uh, we used the How Does Karma Work class to as an excuse to study some other subjects also, okay? And here's one of them. In Buddhism, things being impermanent and your death coming so quickly upon you and also unpredictably, you don't want to waste your time, okay? So in Buddhism... Uh, we don't waste time. You try to find a teaching which is powerful, uh, which can get you enlightened quickly, and you go after it, and you study it, and you devote yourself to it, and you get there before you die. And you outsmart the Lord of death. Okay, That's the game, name of the game. Which means that you have to be able to determine what's a good book to study and what's a waste of time. Okay, So we try to distinguish between what's a good book and what's a waste of time. Uh, four tests for a good book Gu, G- means goal in this case gupa sometimes means necessity here it means goal okay Sog means etc Ch means characteristics Shi means four so these are the four characteristics of a good Buddhist book an authentic book okay like uh, if you went to Tibet and said uh, you know I've been uh, thinking about uh reading a book, you know, it's, it's on the bestseller list, New York Times, you know, fiction, which is unknown practically in Tibet, you know, there, there's almost no thing called fiction, you see, and they'd say, well, what's it about, and you'd say, oh, it's a story, you know, and they'd say, well, does it have Guso Chushi, you know, does it have those four qualities of a, of a book that won't waste your life, you know, and they say, no, they so say, well, why are you reading it, you, you're going to live forever or what, you know, you're going to die, and why are you putting those seeds in your mind? The mind is like a sponge, you know. Anything you expose it to, it sucks up uh, karmic seeds and mental seeds. You know, whatever you see in that movie, whatever you read in that book, whatever you read in that newspaper is going to be planted in your mind. It'll affect you for decades, you know. Just a half hour of reading the New York Times is putting thousands of seeds in your mind, you know, ideas that will float back to you later, you know. Why are you reading that? You see what I mean? They'll, they'll say, if it doesn't have those four qualities, why are you, why are you endangering your mind? You see what I mean? Because uh, you don't have time. And everything you read affects you. And it, your mind soaks it in. Karmically, it comes back. Okay? So here are the four qualities of an authentic Buddhist book. And you should know it. And you should try not to spend your time on anything else. People ask me, did you read such and such a book? I say, No. You know, and, and then they say, well, what are you reading? And I, I just read scripture since 1974. You know, I didn't see any point to read anything else. I do have my bathroom reading. Uh, <laughs> that's another thing. Okay.
2: <laughs> that's
0: so I can keep up on English, you know, what English. <laughs> anyway, first quality is juja. Jujja means subject matter, okay? Subject matter. The book should have some content, okay? Serious content, Jujja. What's the content of the Abhidharma Kosha? Lama Tobe Duchinam Deda La This is the content. Chinnam means uh, the Abhidharma Kosha subject matter is to divide all objects in the universe into Pure and impure. Okay? Every object in the universe is either pure or impure. If you learn that, if you learn which is which, you're out of here. You see what I mean? So that's the subject matter of the Abhidhamma Kosha. Okay? What's pure and what's impure? Next a good Buddhist book better have a gupa. Gopa means goal, okay? The goal. The book should have a goal. Okay, what's the goal of the Abhidharma Kosha, for example? Okay? And you can put in uh, small letters there, short-term goal, all right? Short-term goal. What's the short-term goal of the Abhidharma Kosha? Is to give you wisdom, okay? It's to teach you wisdom. Buddhist wisdom means, can you distinguish between what's pure and what's impure? You know, can you distinguish between self-existent and not self-existent? Can you distinguish between selfishness and compassion? Okay? That's wisdom. Okay? So the, the short-term goal of this book is to give you wisdom. Okay? Especially the wisdom that understands selflessness. In this school, you wouldn't say so much emptiness. Okay? You'd say selflessness. All right? What school are we in, by the way? We're in the detailist school, the Vaibhashikara. The Abhidharma is written from the first of the four great schools from the lowest of the four great schools okay in the monastery they don't spend a lot of time on Abhidharma Uh, Rimache taught it to us for like 10 years Uh, but in the monastery it's only about two years and it's at the end of the course okay these are the beliefs of the lowest of the four schools okay a lot of them by the way are not correct does that mean they aren't useful or maybe weren't spoken by the Buddha (coughs) They're very useful ideas, some very useful ideas uh, for getting enlightened and reaching nirvana. Were they spoken by Lord Buddha, though? If they're wrong. What, what was your last course? <laughs> yeah, they were spoken by Lord Buddha. Are they wrong? Yes. So why did Lord Buddha speak something wrong? It brings people up from a lower level. Okay, I mean, it brings up baby students. The whole, By the way, the whole monastic system Monks' vows, everything is vibhāṣika. Okay, it's all like that. It's all, it's all to help people get up to the next level. Okay, purpose of Abhidharma. Here's quality number three of a good book. <clears throat> Say, Ni G, ni G, Ni G, You see both spellings in scripture, and they're both interesting to me. Okay. Ni means the very, G means goal, meaning ultimate goal. Ning means e- essence, or the root means essence. It's probably a misspelling, but we don't know. You see, you cut this off, and what's it look like? See so, what I mean? But I've checked uh, the computer, you know, I've gone back to the centuries, you see both. Okay, and they both mean ultimate goal. So you might see it spelled either way. Okay, they both mean the ultimate goal, okay. which in this case is called in Abhidharma system the two kinds of nirvana, the two kinds of nirvana. What's the first kind of nirvana? You personally don't have to come back and live in a world of ups and downs anymore. Okay, you personally don't have to come back and live in a world. Where you're on a roller coaster your whole life. Okay? What's the second kind of nirvana? We call uh, Harmen Yangde the ultimate nirvana of of a Buddha. It means enlightenment. Okay? And that's the ultimate goal of this book. Okay? Here's the last of the four qualities. Say, "Dawa, dawa, dawa." Means connection, okay? Dawa means connection. It means this. Uh, suppose this book that you're thinking about studying. Suppose this book that you're thinking about exposing your precious mental real estate to. Suppose it has a subject matter content, but is that content connected? To getting wisdom you see I mean does this lead to that does this come from that you see I mean is there a connection between one and two for this book okay like it, it may be the goal of the book to give you wisdom but it may be a stupid book and have a crummy content in that case there is a content there is a wisdom goal but there's no connection you can't get to one from the last you see what I mean there has to be a connection between them. And if you get wisdom, is it going to lead you to your ultimate goals? Yes. In the case of the Abhidharma, it has it. It has that connection. Ultimate goals come from getting wisdom, and wisdom leads to ultimate goals. Okay? So there's a connection between the two. Okay, Like it might be, there's this famous book in ancient India called... Uh, the Shastra or the Tentra, the scripture on the uh, crow's teeth, you know, which don't exist, all right? And there's no connection between anything, okay? <laughs> like say, I'll give you wisdom, but even if it does, it's not going to lead you to any ultimate goal or anything. You see what I mean? There's no connection, no connection between them. So there has to be a connection between the first, the second, and the third. And that is the fourth quality. The connection, having a connection, is the fourth quality. And people tell me I like this book. You know, what do you think about this book about nature spirits in the American Indians? Or what do you think about this book about uh, this new guy came out uh, with these prophecies? It looks pretty cool. You know, what do you think about this book of this person who's channeling with so and so and and connected with such and such? You know, look at this page because this page is almost like something in Buddhism. This is exciting. You know, and I say don't waste your time on it. You know what I mean? You, you have 200,000 books on Buddhism in the world, you know. No need to go look at something that has a few pages that are almost like something meaningful. You see what I mean? It's not, a, a, it's not an authentic book. It's not a useful book, okay? And, and, and you don't have time to spend time on the books that have interesting pieces in them that might relate to something important. Why not go to a book that has 100% Relates to something important. You see what I mean? Uh, you don't have time to fool around with these. Uh, and this book will be off the bestseller list in six months. I went to Arizona recently. We got bored one day. We went to, what's that little town? Uh, Wilcox, Arizona. We went to see a movie. And uh, there was a sign-up. So the movie starts at 8 o'clock. It was 7 o'clock. And then there was this other sign below it that said, if less than five people show up for the movie, we reserve the right to cancel it. You know, and uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And uh, so next door, there's this bookstore. We go to the bookstore to hang out. And it's all books that were uh, thrown out and collected in the bookstore. So they're all over five years old. These were the most important books five years ago. And they're so silly, you know. Every single book there looks so silly now, you know. You go to the Godstow, to the library, and there's all these... These people were high intellectuals. This lady was a president of university. And they're the silliest books. You open them up now, and they look so silly, you know. I mean, they're just passing thing, you know, passing fact. There's a such and such prophecy book, you know. Uh, and then you... Just see if it's going to te- survive the five-year test, okay, before you read it, okay? <laughs> I mean, these books have survived the two and a half thousand year test. Okay? Really. Okay? And and you go read these books a thousand years from now, they'll still be extraordinary. You see what I mean? So, so check a book. Don't waste your time. Okay? Unless it's bathroom reading, I don't care. That's all right. That's where I read those books. Uh, the... Uh, How does the Abhidharma Kosha get into karma? We're supposed to be talking about karma, okay? Now we get into karma. Uh, that's in the fourth chapter. The third chapter of the Abhidharma Kosha talks about where did the world come from? How many planets are there in the universe? Are there people living on other planets? How many realms are there? What happens to you after you die? You know, what's the bardo like? Things like that. You know, how did all, where did we come from? And where are we going? And it's a whole description of the world. How's the world going to end? And there's a beautiful description of a supernova of the sun, and then the sun splitting into uh, different uh, different stars called the sun, uh, supernoving, and and then and then uh, other stars rising from that, and 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 vaporizing the planet eventually. Okay, uh, very interesting. And this is uh, the third chapter of the Abhidhamma Kosha. Then uh, in the fourth chapter, they teach karma. Okay, karma is called lay, and I uh, I love the first few lines. I quote them often, okay? Here's the first line of the fourth chapter. Lele jikten natuke. Okay? You want to know where all these planets come from all over the world? You think some god made them from dirt clods on the sixth day or something? Forget it. Lele jikten means the worlds of the universe and the beings who live on them, where every atom of them was created by karma and only karma. Okay? Lele jikten natuke. Then it says, what is karma? And it says... Say, you want to know what karma is? It says, Lelejitanazuke, Deni Semba. De means karma is anytime your mind moves. Okay? Movement of the mind. Anytime your mind shifts a microsecond, a micromillimeter, anytime you have the slightest passing piece of a thought, you have just created karma. That is karma. Okay, I like to call it karma concentrate. Like Coke concentrate. Like the stuff you use in the fountains. Fountain, when you go to the fountains. You know, what do you call it? Fountain drinks? Fountain soda, yeah. Like it's the stuff in the bottle that's this very concentrated black stuff and then they mix it with soda water and they give you Coke. Uh, Raw karma. Raw karma. Concentrated karma is the act of thinking. Okay? The movement of the mind. 65 in a finger snap. Okay. okay Okay. that's how many karmas you're committing in the time it takes to snap my finger okay you have 65 pieces of a thought in the time it takes me to snap my fingers and that's karma that's raw karma Deni Semba and then the next line says I ran out of room here how about we do it here say DANG DANG DE che. CHE DANG DE che. CHE DANG means and okay? and what? so far he said what's karma? Anytime your mind moves okay? oh and by the way there's a little bit more about karma DANG means and DE CHE means whatever those movements of the mind cause you to do with your speech or in, with your body okay? so now we got three kinds of karma okay? karma is thinking uh, oh, and by the way, anything that that thinking motivates you to say or to do. So we got three kinds of karma now, okay? Then they go on to a really cool kind of uh, karmic... This is a cool idea from the Abhidhamma Kosha from the Abhidharma schools which nobody else accepts. Okay? No other school accepts. There's a thing called non-communicating form. Sorry. Okay? Non-communicating form. And uh, your class leaders can struggle through it with you. But the basic idea is this. In the Abhidharma kosha, they say, when you do something really good or when you do something really bad, then a karmic photograph is taken. Okay? A karmic photograph is taken. And some kind of physical halo actually envelops your body and stays with you. And that's karma. You know, that's the result of karma. So like, when a person goes and gets ordained and gets down on their knee and says, I do, you know, at the moment they say, ooh, uh, there forms this thing on them called their vows their monks' vows or their nuns' vows, and that they believe it's actually a, a physical envelope. Uh, some of the texts say it also permeates your body like oil permeates a, a sesame seed or something like that. But at that moment, uh, some kind of, you know, glowy, ephemeral, uh, light, Thing envelops you. And every time you do some really heavy good deed or some really heavy bad deed, then this thing envelops you. Okay? Uh, so they divide karma into two types. They say, there's this karma that other people can't see on you, but is on you. So like if I dress up in, in pants and a shirt and I walk down Second Avenue and people look at me, uh, do they see that envelope? Do they see my monk's vows? You see, I mean, And we say no. And that's what we call non-communicating form. You can't see it anymore. Okay? Communicating form means uh, when that guy gets down on his knee and when he takes his two hands and puts them to his chest and, and says, I do, then it communicates something to you about his or her motivation. You know, oh, this person must be having renunciation. Why? They said I do in an ordination ceremony. Okay? The only reason to become a monk or nun is because you're so disgusted with life that you're forced into it. Okay? Seriously. And the vows don't form unless you have that. So, you can, you're, you're thinking, you're watching this person and they're down, they've got their knee down there, and they've got their arm, and they're like, I do. And when you hear the do, you say, I can guess something about this person's motivation. They must have pretty good renunciation. Okay? That's, that's what we call communicating form. So, there's two kinds of In the Abhidharma, there's like two kinds of karma, you know. One, you can deduce the person's state of mind from it. One of them then becomes invisible. Like, five minutes later, this karma or these vows have become something invisible that they have on them. Uh, But you can't see it, unless you're like some kind of extraordinary being, okay? Now, the higher schools say that that's not true, and there's no such uh, halo around you, but you've got to study it anyway because it's a useful idea, isn't it? It's one of those things that Lord Buddha taught that's not technically true and it's very useful to think that you're walking around with some kind of glow around you called your vows. Yeah. That, that a lot to be like aura? Yeah, it sounds a lot like auras. It does. Exactly. Okay. Lord Buddha said auras exist and they don't. Okay. <laughs> All Okay. right. Uh. We're going to talk about good karma, bad karma, neutral karma. You can do that in your breakout sessions, okay? Like, but I'll give you just one clue, okay? Is karma bad karma because Lord Buddha said so? No. Uh, is karma bad karma because uh, you feel bad when you do it? No. Uh is karma bad karma because God said it's a bad thing? You see what I mean? No. Uh, is, bad, is karma bad karma just because anybody said it was a bad thing? No. Okay? Is karma bad karma because it hurts other people? No. It's very interesting. I mean, if it does hurt other people, it's probably bad karma, okay? Except when the teacher hits their student. That's okay. Okay? <laughs> just kidding Um, so so when is a karma a bad karma you see in Buddhism what's the whole linchpin of ethics of Buddhism it hurts you get it straight okay if an action ripens into an unpleasant experience for you bluntly it's a bad karma okay and you want to avoid it Alright, so that's the text. It's very interesting. It's a big jump for people who grew up in a Western society because your whole idea of ethics is, is something else. God said so. Mom said so. The law said so. My teacher said so. You know, that's why we do it in my society. And, and in Buddhism, the most primary thing about good karma is that it's going to bring you happiness and nirvana and enlightenment. And the most basic thing about bad karma is, it's going to screw you up. All right? Now, there are books that say, uh, Okay? And that, of course, uh, it's bad karma to hurt other people. So I'm not saying it's not bad karma. And I'm not saying you shouldn't think about other people when you think about bad karma. But if you want to know how the Abhidharma Kosha defines bad karma, it's those actions, which if you do them, then by a law as strong as the laws of gravity, you will suffer. Okay? You've got to get that in mind. You've got to keep that in mind. And trying to outfox karma is as likely as outfoxing gravity. Okay? Uh, it doesn't work. You know, please don't fall down. Please don't fall down. I pray don't fall down. It falls down, okay. And karma is the same. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what book you read last week from the New York Times. There are certain actions that if you do them, you will suffer. Period. It's a law of nature, and and those are the rules of karma. And you have to study karma and learn what kinds of actions are going to make you put yourself in trouble. That's all, okay? That's the laws of karma. Yeah. Rules? Yeah.
2: That there are certain rules, certain things that will make you suffer, you to know what they are. Yeah. Are there, are there absolute
0: rules that apply to everyone? Uh, yeah. She said, are those absolute rules that apply to everyone? Yeah. The list apply to everyone. If a Buddha were to do the ten non-virtues, they would suffer. How's that? Okay. All right. Mm. Then you're going to have the ten main bad deeds. Okay. People ask me, when does karma come back to you? Yeah. How could a Buddha create a trauma? can't. I said, if they could. Stop your Okay? <laughs> if they could. Okay. What if a Buddha broke of ten non with yeah. a good
2: motivation?
0: He says, what if a Buddha broke one of the ten non virtues with a good motivation? We wouldn't say they broke the ten non-virtues. We said they have uh, removed a wealthy person's property. Uh <laughs> To to assist a poor person. (laughs) You see? Uh, And Jethro Kappa says, it's not only not breaking a vow, it is creating a tremendous good deed. Okay? But those are very tricky, very slippery, very touchy, years of study before you talk about them. So we won't. Okay. Oh, that's a good question. Feel bad in the present is what I'm talking about. Like, a lot of us feel bad when we have to go do our two-hour Uh That doesn't mean it's a bad karma. <laughs> <laughs> All right? Like that. Okay. People ask me, uh, how long does it take karma to ripen? You see what I mean? Uh, and this, I think, it's important to know. Okay? So there are three kinds of ripenings of karma. Karma can come back to you in one of three periods. First kind is called karma that you see in this life. It's called tonggyur Karma that you see in this life. It means you do something especially powerful in this life and you will see the results before you die. Okay? Then there's karma which gives you a result in the very next life. Okay? Like it's particularly, you could say, like a karma that was going to determine your next life. That would be uh, what we call a next life karma. And then number three karma is anything later than that. Okay? Second life on. Okay? Those, those are the three kinds of karma. I like this teaching because it's very interesting. This teaching is accepted by all schools. And I saw some really cool things that made me very happy. This is Mutu Dhamma a great lama of our lineage, about 200 years ago. And he says, by the way... Number one is the basis for Tantra. Okay? Number one is the basis for Tantra. <clears throat> Meaning, we have hope, you know. We, we have hope only because if you do extremely powerful karma in the earlier part of your life, then later you can become enlightened in this lifetime. Okay? As a result of that karma. And that's exactly the principle behind Tantric practice. Okay? You're trying to go for the big time and create certain kinds of karma which are so powerful that before you die, you become Tara or you become Manjushri. Okay? And this is uh, from the Dharma Kosha, the most humble of the four schools. Here it is, the key to Tantra, you see, is that if you undertake certain practices with total devotion total understanding, total training, total commitment, then those results will mature in this lifetime. And, and that's the principle of kar- uh, That principle of karma is the foundation of tantric practice. Okay, yeah. He asked, what is it about a certain deed that determines if it's going to be ripening in this life or the next life or the next one? Uh, I call it the queuing question and I think I always think of Newark Airport me and Rinpoche used to drive by Newark sometimes he'd say it's amazing you westerners have figured out how to get metal to fly in the sky like amazing I can't believe you can't get enlightened you know what I mean you know know? and I remember uh, so I'd look over there I remember looking over there and there's planes lined up in queue and then every once in a while the control tower will say okay you can cut in front you see what I mean? And this plane can go before the four planes that have been waiting. And this is the question of karmic queuing. You know How do the karmas queue up? And what could put your tantric karma in front and outfox all those other karmas? You see, that's what you want. You want tantric karma plane to be, you want the control tower to say, you get to go first. You know, all these thousands and millions of karmas are waiting to take off. You go up to the front of the queue and take off. And then to hell with the rest. They'll never ripen. You see, I mean, they will never ripen. They'll die in the womb. You see, and that's the whole theory of tantric practice. Now, what is it that gets a plane up to the front of the queue? What gets it? That gets? What is it about this karma that's going to put it in front of all the other karmas you've done for the last five thousand years or so? We'll talk about it. Okay. Yeah. She said uh, if a person were to perform sort of a, a mediocre karma, or, you know, not a very strong karma, but if that person happens to be a high being already, okay, like they blow their nose or something, yeah. but they're already an Arya and they're already a Bodhisattva, then, then does that become a powerful karma? Uh, you can say that. Actually, I'll tell you what it is now, in case I die in the next five minutes, okay? Let me see if it's in here. It's not in here, but I'll tell you. It's on your... It was on a homework. Maybe I didn't put it on your homework. No, I didn't. No, it's not here. Yes, yeah, so I'll just tell you. Uh, it's called Shisampa Pajor or like that. And there are, these are the factors that affect it. One, you can say your motivation. Okay? So if your motivation is extraordinary then that karma will move up in queue. That karma will be sent to the front of the line. So, for example, tantra has to be done with a really extraordinary motivation. Okay. Uh, One can be the type of person involved. Like, is this a powerful being towards whom you're doing this karma or not? So, like, they say if you only have one hamburger and you have a choice between giving it to a homeless person or a dog, give it to the human. Uh, not because dogs are bad or they're not real people or anything like that, but, but the human has a better chance in this lifetime to get enlightened. So better to give it to someone who's got a better chance. You see what I mean? So that would be the example of that. One would be a particularly powerful karmic object is someone who has been of great help to you. And this is the principle for treating your parents well. okay. Whether you like them, whether they were good to you, whether they ditched you after a certain time, doesn't matter. They gave you the equipment that you can reach tantric enlightenment with, with. And in so doing, have, get, have paid one of the greatest kindnesses that anyone can give you. They gave you a body complete with 72,000 channels and minor channels and all the chakras that you need to get tantrically enlightened. Thank you. You see what I mean? And and very powerful. You have to be kind to them. You have to act properly towards them because they have done you such benefit. You see what I mean? So those are some of the factors involved in, in trying to get a karma to move up. And there's, there's some other factors too. You'll read it in your reading. It'll be in your reading. Yeah. John said uh, two questions. One is, what would distinguish a a non-tantric bodhisattva motivation from, for example, a tantric bodhisattva motivation? Is there any difference? You see, I mean, bodhisattva motivation is already really heavy. So what's the difference between a non-tantric bodhisattva motivation and a tantric bodhisattva motivation? The tantric bodhisattva motivation differs from the non-tantric bodhisattva's motivation in that the tantric Bodhisattva motivation is obsessed with getting enlightened immediately and willing to take the risk involved with that you see I mean it's some kind of courage it's sometimes a kind of commitment and it's some kind of very clear decision in that person 's mind that whatever the cost whatever the potential cost, whatever people think of me, I will get enlightened immediately. I will do whatever i the most powerful things that that Scriptures teach, and that lamas teach. I will, uh, I will, to the best of my ability, immediately get as far as I can. I will not waste a moment uh, to get enlightened, and and I will, I will do those things that the heaviest things I can do to get enlightened quickly. I won't, I won't be satisfied with a month from now or a year from now or three years from now or something like that. I will do. I will undertake to study and practice properly to the best of my ability and within my capacity the highest teachings possible. Okay? That's all. Because I want it to happen now. Okay? That's, a, that's the main distinction. Okay? Second question. What was the second question? Huh? Oh, timing. Yeah, karma can, can ripen within a minute. Forget it. Yeah. Karma can ripen within a minute. There are uh, karmas especially related to Tantra, that can ripen immediately, very, very fast. Okay?
2: Yeah.
0: Jennifer said, you know, unless you're enlightened, you don't really know if a good thing that happens to you is coming from something you just did or something you did a thousand years ago, right? Or a million years ago. Uh, as you get better with your practice, you'll be able to distinguish. Okay? Because of the content, like uh your your good deeds have a certain extraordinary and new content, and then you have certain extraordinary and new experiences that happening to you regularly that weren't happening for the last 40 or 50 years. And that's an indication that, you see what I mean? That's an indication that the extraordinary actions that you're undertaking now are having some extraordinary immediate results. That's about all I can say on that. Yeah. Uh, she said, if you hang out with your llama, does the karma speed up? Yes, definitely.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: There's a lot that happens between a student and a teacher by osmosis if they are close. That can never happen in a class. Okay. All right. mm. I'm going to let you in your breakout sessions go through the... There's this real cool thing about the four kinds of ripenings of karma. You know... Karma ripens in four different ways, and it's very, very, very important to know this, okay? Uh, Karma determines where you're going to go in your next life and future lives, okay? First thing. Secondly, karma decides what's going to happen to you if you happen to get born as a human in the future, okay? Which could be a long time from now, all right? But if you do happen to get born as a future... Well, let's just take killing, for example. And I'll go very quickly through it. If you kill, then if it's bad enough, you will go to a lower realm in your next birth. Period. Okay? Uh, that's the first effect or consequence of karma. Second one. If you kill, and then suppose you work up to a human later at some time, you will always be unhealthy, you'll always have back aches, people will be will threaten you all the time. You'll live in a dangerous city. Okay? These are these are what we call personal consequences. So you see the first one is going to a lower realm. The next one is even if you go to a human realm, it's a dangerous place to live. And you're always feeling sick, unhealthy. Okay? Is, this, yeah. is this that no one who's in this world right now is in their Um we can say that no one who is in this desire realm plane right now had a karma at the end of their last life from killing someone in a very bad way. Let's say it that way. Yeah, that's true. It's in, you know, what His Holiness says, I kind of giggle sometimes. He says, basically, everyone's a good person, right? It's actually true. Anyone who's got up to the desire realm, to a human rebirth, you are one in, a, in many billions of creatures. Uh, you're already that. Pabongka Rinpoche says, whenever you're feeling low self-esteem, uh, reflect on the fact, if you haven't done anything else right in your life, you're still one in many trillions of beings. You would not be in this realm, especially having heard Dharma, if you weren't one in trillions and trillions and trillions of beings. You are, you are the one who worked their way up to this place. Yeah. Doesn't mean you don't have karma in your pocket to die tomorrow in a horrible way because you killed somebody. No. Okay? Yeah. This is the third karmic result, okay? <laughs> is that you, you're attracted to doing that thing more. Even if you're born as a human, uh, the third one is that you're, you're attracted to that kind of behavior, okay? Fourth one, uh, what is the fourth one? Oh, environmental result, okay? Your, your city is a dangerous place to live. There's lots of wars where you live. You know, you're in a country which is constantly under attack or something like that. People mug people a lot where you live, something like that. It's a violent place to live and a and a dangerous place to live, okay? The food's not good, the water's not good, crops don't happen. You know, things don't work right, okay? It's amazing. You know, frankly, you go to India, there's so much poverty, so much suffering. Uh, and so, by the way, and so much happiness. I mean, the people are, a lot of the people are very much more mentally healthy than in New York City. I'd say that mental health in India is markedly better than New York, seriously. But physically, it's a very impoverished place. Then you go to Bangkok. It's on the same parallel. It gets the same basic weather, you know. It's the same dirt. Uh, but, you know, it's this, like, booming place and everybody's, you know, got Mercedeses. And, you know, And what is it that, that creates that difference, you see? And that's karma, Okay. Uh, somebody had a question? Last
2: question. Does that mean
0: yeah. that anyone who's starving or in a war-torn country has really bad karma? She said, does it mean that anyone who's starving or lives in a war-torn country has any bad karma? The, the answer is, if starving or living in a war-torn country is hurting you, personally, it's, your, it's a result of your bad karma. If you live in a war-torn country and you're making great profits off the suffering of other people, you're... It's a good karma, you see what I mean? It's very interesting. Or if you enjoy being hungry. I mean, some people fast, you see, seriously. I mean, if, if, if being hungry somehow makes you feel uplifted, then that's a good, that's a result of a good karma. The only question is, does it make you feel good or bad? Does it make you feel happy or sad? Then I can tell you if it's a good karma or a bad karma. Did you? He wants me to stop. Okay, I'm not going to. All right, uh, last question. I don't think you can understand how karma works if you don't go to the mind-only school. And when I heard the mind-only school's presentation on karma, I rejoiced. I celebrated. I interrupted my teacher for the first time. Maybe the last time. I said, he's presenting how karma works according to the mind-only. And I said, I blurted out, you know, which is totally illegal in the monastery, especially with this teacher, Geshe Tudorinjit, is to... Uh, Say, wait a minute, that sounds great. Why are we attacking that idea? He says, this idea we accept. You know, this idea of the mind-only school we accept. You know, and I was like, I said, wow! You know, and he's like, you know, anyway, the basic thing is this. Uh, okay. By the way, it's, and it's not that things are mind-only. Okay, that's not what's so cool about it. It's this. Uh, and, and, and I'm very, very... Uh, frustrated that it's not presented more often, okay? It's frustrating to me that in Buddhist lectures or in Buddhist teachings, they don't draw the connection more often, okay? It's very, I think it's a very sad thing, okay? And, and that's the pen thing, okay? This is, a, this is a cylinder. It's a blue and white cylinder, okay? It's empty. It's blank. It doesn't have any identity of its own, if you were an Eskimo from the 12th century and you came in here, you'd say, wow, white and blue stick, very smooth, you know. And that, for you, that's what it would be, you see, that's what it would be for you. And then if you're, you know, a, a human in the 20th century and you've been to these classes and you say, you come in and you say, oh, a pen, a blue pen, wow, a blue pen. Okay, you see the cylinder as a blue pen. He sees it as a smooth state. If you're a dog, you come in here, I'm waving this thing around, and you say, oh, something to chew on. Looks very chewable. You know, just the right size. I like stuff like that. Let me see if I can chew on it, you see? Now, who's right? Who's having a pramana? You learned pramana last week. Who's having a temma? All three are having a temma. A valid perception. Okay, I got out of it, right? I didn't say correct. See, you get the point? It's valid for their circumstances, okay? Given their background and what they are and who they are, everyone's right, okay? Now, one of the proofs of the emptiness of this pen is nothing can be those three things at once. You see? You can't be something to chew on, something to write with, and a smooth stick. I mean, unless you... uh, uh, uh. yeah, but you can't literally be all three at the same time, okay? That's a proof that those qualities... But that nature is not emanating from this cylinder. You're putting that on it. That's a, you have to think about it carefully. You're projecting onto it some kind of identity. It does not have any identity. That's the meaning of emptiness. Ultimately, this is Mrs. Rebush's question in Melbourne. It doesn't even have its own cylinderness. But that's another story. Okay, <laughs> not, let's not get confused. And don't space out on me. Okay, get it. You know, it doesn't have its own identity. These three beings from these three backgrounds are putting their own identity onto it. They're projecting their own identity. And what what frustrates me that is so rarely brought up in Buddhist talks is where is that coming from? Where is that projection coming from? Karma. And that's why Lord Buddha spent half the time of his 80 years on this planet teaching you what was good to do and what was bad to do. Karma, good karma, bad karma. And half his time talking about emptiness. Duh, there's a connection, okay? This is empty, and your karma is forcing you, compelling you to see it in a certain way. You can't choose to see this as a chocolate bar. You can't choose to see this as, as, a, as a rod of pure diamond shining with gold in the way a Buddha sees it, okay? Is it possible to see it that way? Yes. Can you do it by just wanting to do it? No. Your karma is forcing you to see it in a certain way, Okay? And, and it frustrates me that the connection is not drawn more frequently, okay? This is empty, it's like a movie screen, and your karma is forcing you to project something onto it and see something. And how you relate to that fake movie on the screen is, decides whether you get enlightened or not, you see? If you get angry because, uh, it's not what you wanted it to be, then you'll keep suffering. And if you finally wake up and say, oh, Oh, I see it as a pen because of my karma. Well, uh, in the future, I'll just try to collect better karma. I don't like pens like that. The guy keeps going on for all night, you know. All right? So, that's the deal. That's how karma works, in a nutshell. Uh, take a break, and then we'll, we'll break out into our classes. Okay? Okay? that's my copy. Okay, we'll start. A uh, couple of announcements. Mm, what are those? I'm going to start telling you now what will be going on during the break, just so you know. Uh, Wednesday night meditation class will continue, as far as I know. Uh, Friday night Tibetan class usually keeps going. Uh, it looks like the yoga class might continue, sitting without pain. Okay. But we gotta ask the boss. Uh, what's the other thing? Uh, we continue to have a lot of volunteer work during the gap. If you're available, uh, talk to Aura. Where's Aura? there, okay, especially uh helping her with transcribing looks like we might looks like a very good possibility we'll get a grant to uh take care of all the English transcription work uh, for the next year or something like that. Uh, they asked us to take out the salaries, and we did, and then they said, well, maybe we'll do it then, so what it means is we still have to do it volunteer okay uh on a starvation basis but uh <laughs> but at least they'll provide the uh, the equipment and the uh, tapes and the videos and the reproduction services and stuff like that, the programming stuff and, and stuff like that. Uh, good possibility. Yeah, I can't, oh yeah, I'm gonna talk about that too. Uh, <laughs> Godstow will continue very strong during the break. Um, we're loosening up the rules at Godstow immensely. We're changing the policies there drastically. Uh we're inviting people to come up uh in an informal basis. Uh people want to do their layroom one month retreats there, we're gonna to try to provide for that. People want to go up for a weekend and just get away from the city and read their Dharma book on the couch uh with a couple of friends, we're gonna to try to be providing that and uh that more much more relaxed atmosphere and a lot more informal. So even if it's not a formal program, that you'd still be able to use it as your country house, okay? Uh, we got our tax exemption from the town. We don't have to hide our heads anymore, so we can uh, we can have a li- we can loosen it up a little bit more there. And the uh, former owners, who are going to be making their decision in the next six months about whether to let us stay there or not, uh, have have said they they appreciate us to use it more. They'd like to see a lot of activity there. So you can actually help by getting away from the city and going up there and laying on the couch. Uh, Okay? Talk to Nancy Karen if you're interested in organizing any kind of thing. She's right there. She'll be in charge of it. And uh, you're more than welcome to come. It's very uh, easy to get to and it's very cool. I think I'll be hanging out there more too. Uh, Ken Rinpoche has kindly agreed to start teaching again. It starts uh, April 18th on a Sunday. It usually starts at one or two one o 'clock uh, he 'll be teaching Ghana which is a really really cool Jetson Kappa uh, practice, and uh, to hear it from the greatest living master of Buddhism is a rare opportunity, so you should go, you really should go he he doesn 't teach that much nowadays anymore, and and uh, when he does teach it's it 's insane not to go okay uh, he 's also kindly agreed to offer, to grant us initiation, uh, two tantric initiations in June. Uh, I'll be giving you more details about that. Who should take them? Uh, He usually asks for a list from New York, who wants to take them. I generally don't, and I very frankly don't approve of, of big initiations where many people are getting initiation. And, uh, the Lama hasn't had time to test them for ten years or something, and they're not closely, intimately related to the Lama, and, and I don't, I don't, personally, I don't, I don't know if that's such a good thing. Uh, with Ken Rinpoche in these niche initiations, him being, you know, in my mind, the most active, authentic lineage holder of these initiations from Tibet, and, uh, he was a, Master at the Tantric College before Tibet was lost. There's nobody like that. I mean, there's nobody left like that. Uh, I think you should go for it, you know. Uh, (laughs) And I'm willing to, uh, you know, put in a good word for anybody who's really sincerely interested. It's not easy. Uh, It's not uh, something to be done lightly. Uh, It may not work for you. Uh, You may not have the strength to continue it the way you should but I still think you should try. Uh, and so in this case, I think you should, I mean, my, my, my thinking is to encourage you to try, okay? And I don't do it lightly. I don't generally approve of, of the idea of a large initiation or something like that. But I, in this case, the object is so supreme that you should probably go for it, okay? Uh, They're Chakrasambara initiation and, and Vajjayogini initiation. Chakrasambara is rare because it's hard to perform, and he's only done it a few times in his life. And so I'd really encourage you to go. Uh, I'll give you more details later. Uh, first,
2: and,
0: first and third weekends in June. Okay. Uh, June, June. Say again? June, June. <laughs> yeah, in June, yeah. Okay, very short. You know, we've been covering the theory of ACI... Uh, what are the principles? What is the core study? Uh, last time, what did we t- I forgot we talked about. Anyway, what was it last time? Oh yeah, how do you keep it? How do you administer it? How do you keep it from getting corrupted uh, in hundred years or two hundred years? Uh, and that was keep your book. Very simple. Okay. Uh, I think tonight I'd like to talk about management as far as financial management of the place. Okay, and about our lineage. Uh, what we believe about that. And I mainly chose this because it's a short subject and I have to go to a movie. Uh, And
2: uh, (laughs) It's very important. Uh,
0: (laughs) But it's like this. Very simply, okay? Uh, It's a tradition of our lineage that all teachings must always be free. Period. Okay? Uh, Teachings should be free. In the monastery, as Geshe Lothar knows, uh, when you take on a student, you take on their expenses. Geshe Lothar himself has probably had two or three hundred students in the time I've known him, and he's paid all their expenses. And that's the system in the Galukpa tradition, you know? When you take on a student, uh, it's your responsibility to take care of them and not vice versa. You see what I mean? So, uh, I think it should stay that way. And I think it's a brilliant system and it's beautiful. And we don't charge for teachings, okay? Uh, you can, and I and I tell you frankly, you know, uh, the first few years that you have your own students, they'll drive you crazy because you'll be going broke all the time, and you may have to go get a job to pay for the hall and to pay for the notebook and to pay for the paper, and that's fine, and you should do it because it's an honor to be a teacher, and it's an honor to be in the lineage, and if you have to go to work, and I said this in California, everybody's like. Uh, <laughs> Really, that should be your idea. It should be like that, okay? It's your honor. to. It's, it's an honor to have the opportunity to pay for the student's needs. And it's a bodhisattva vow that you're required to do that. Uh, forget the requirements. It's just the way it should be, okay? And so forget charging. You should be taking care of the needs of your students. Uh, and if that means that you have to go uh, work in a restaurant or something, you should go do it. And I know that's not a... Easy thing to think about, okay? <laughs> but, uh, think like that. That's the way Dharma should work, okay? Much less not charging, okay? So that's the way the financial part should work. If, and, and you know, work up from what you can afford. The first books that this organization ever printed were done on a mimeograph machine in the basement of Ken Rinpoche's house. We bound them ourselves with, we made the tools from thrown out lumber and, we did all the stamping with this handmade stamping thing and uh that was MSTP you know the press started that way and, and it should be like that okay you should struggle uh the finances should be raised largely internally you know you shouldn't go wandering around looking for some uh, big sponsor who's going to prop up your organization when when the people in the organization aren't propping it up you see what i mean should come from the people that you're working with. And you should never hassle the students about money, okay? You should never say, you can't come if you don't give money, and you shouldn't, uh, you know, every week tell them uh, you need this and that and that, okay? Once in a while, okay? If it's for something, everyone's going to use or something. But in general, shouldn't be any financial thing connected with the Dharma, you know? It should just be clean from that. And a lot of people have come to me in New York City and said, the reason we come to your class is that you don't ask for money. You see what I mean? And it should be like that. And, and that's the way the, the, the money part should go. And, and it's your honor to go to work and support the Dharma. Even if it means you pay for the books, and you pay for the materials, and you pay for the place. And it should be like that, okay? That's the first thing about money. Second is, whatever money you do get, internally, organically, what comes naturally, uh, you know, because of the because the students are learning more and more and understand more, they're more devoted to the purpose of the thing, then naturally, there should grow some finances and they should start supporting the place. Uh, totally voluntarily and from their own hearts. Okay. Um, then your big responsibility is to take care of the money properly. you know. And that means, in my mind, for example, if a, if a, if a monk gets a room, if I get a room from Leon South, I'm required to pay that's income and uh, the current American law is that I have to report that as income Uh, and when I go to some place like Vajrapani and they offer me money I'm required to report that and uh, I should report that you see what I mean like all the money of this organization and every Dharma organization should be totally clean Uh, what's required to be reported should be reported Uh, all the money should be should go through books, you know. Uh, all the money that comes into the organization should come in through a proper accounting system, you know, on a computer. It should be properly recorded and properly paid out. And that's the way Dharma, down to the penny. You, the karma of misusing Dharma money is extremely powerful. I was once complaining to my Lama at... Sarah May, about that I had to keep books and that every time I came to the monastery I had to sit through endless hours of accounting. I learned all these Tibetan numbers so well. Uh, And he said, you should be proud that they chose you to do it because the only person in ancient India in the London monastery that was trusted to do the books was Nagarjuna. And because the karma of missing a dollar is extraordinary. You know, the karma of misusing one dollar of the of the money of the Sangha, of the community, is so powerful that only Nagarjuna was was allowed to keep the books. You see what I mean? So, So you should keep, everything should be totally spotless and in the spirit of the law, especially. You know, not just minimum what you have to do to get away with it. It should be that everything that goes through is clearly recorded. Every penny is accounted for. And and I think a computer is a good way to do that, okay? Um, and and I believe that those books should be open to the public, okay? I believe that any person in, in a Dharma organization should be able to come to the directors or whoever and say, I wanna see the books. I wanna see where the money came from and I wanna see how you spent the money. And except in the case where the, the sponsor is asked to be anonymous. So you can, you, know, you can cover that page up or something. Uh, but I think that uh, Dharma organizations' finances should be public knowledge and should be that anyone in the organization should be able to come and, and look at the books and say, I don't agree with that. And, and they should have that right. And that that's a responsibility of a Dharma organization. Um, that's about all I can think of about money. You know, money is the root of all evil. A lot of Dharma organizations have collapsed through the finances. And I think, oh, one more thing I would say is that a Dharma organization should never make so many obligations that raising money becomes the main focus of that organization. You see, because I know Dharma centers who've rented some fancy place and uh, they've put all this money into it and they've signed off on this huge mortgage. And then all the activities of the center is, you know, selling bake sales and fares and desperate attempts to make the rent. And then finally they fail because the people aren't studying they're raising money and uh, i think much better than building big temples or blah 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 have your dharma classes in a small apartment that somebody has get somebody to rent a space to you for cheap or get it for free i can't believe that i don't believe that most of the big expensive dharma buildings that are built are necessary i don't think they are i think Dharma can be done in a living room as well as in a big temple. And, uh, and I, I think it should be a principle of this organization that, uh, financial obligations are not created that are going to distract the people from what we're doing, you know, and that there shouldn't be a burden of mortgage or a debt passed on from one Dharma generation to the next. You know, I don't, I think you don't need much space to have true Dharma teachings. Uh, Living rooms seem to work quite well. Uh, and I, that's just my theory of Dharma finance, okay? And uh, that's about all I can think of. I don't think teachers should make money off of what they do. And if they do, they should give it away. Or they should reinvest it in some other Dharma thing like that, okay? And that it's very, very beautiful when a teacher is living simply. When the teacher has one shirt or two shirts and one pants or two pants and... And, uh, they obviously are not wasting money and they're living simply and quietly and, and that's a, I think that helps the students' faith a lot. And I'm telling you because you will be teachers someday. And I think that's important. Does that mean you shouldn't use large sums of money if you get into them? No. I mean, we had a million dollar grant a few years ago and we used it. And we support thousands of Tibetan monks and, and we support Saving 150,000 pages of books, and we use the money. So it doesn't mean you can't have money. You get it in the proper way, and you use it in the proper way, and your personal expenses should be very low, and uh, you should never uh, mix dharma and money, and never require a student to ever feel obligated to pay anything. That's a very bad karma, okay? All right. Uh, we'll do a prayer. All right. <coughs>
2: I hey.